If you need a Bible, raise your hand. The, the ushers will come forward and hand you one uh, if you don't have one. Once you get a Bible, turn to Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can take that one home. That's our gift to you so that you can be in God's Word. But, but we're starting the family series today, so happy Family Day weekend, right? It's uh, pretty clever that we're starting a family series on Family Day weekend. I, I don't know if that was an accident or on purpose. I'll give Kai the benefit of the doubt that it was on purpose. But nonetheless, we're starting a family series here today. Um, High-level view is the hope with the family series is that, that we'd be able to, to look at God's design for the family so that whether you're a single mother or a single father, whether you're married, husband, wife, mother, father, whether you're a child, whether you're an orphan, adopted, it doesn't matter whether you're a child in a broken family or a healthy family, we're hoping to be able to lay out God's design, God's hope, God's role for the family, and even in those specific nuances within the family that we read about in God's Word Usually when you start a series like this, the expectation is that that we're going to give you some practical tools to help you be a better fill-in-the-blank. So if you're a mother or you're a wife or you're a father, husband, whatever the case, that wherever you find yourself in a family, that here's some practical so that you can do it better. Now, now that we'll touch on some of those things, I think we want to go deeper than that, and I'm excited what God has for us as a church in those things. So my challenge today is to give a baseline for family, okay? So that, so that Pastor Kai can, can lead us into the specific roles in and amongst the family. But i got to give a baseline for family from God's Word without talking much about the family. Okay? So um, that drew a bit more of a laugh at the nine. I'm not, not, not sure where you guys are. But no, the winter has not got to me. I'm, I'm fine. I'm making it. We're getting through February. I'm not going to talk much about family today. But we need to understand this baseline if we're going to understand how God designed us and how he intends things to be. So if you look in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 is where we're going to be. There's some neat things happening that build up to verse 26 that I want to just briefly give some context to. So here's the picture of Genesis. The, the writer of Genesis, most likely it was Moses, especially because some of the language that's used in and through Genesis that ties into other books that he wrote, it's written in a very poetic way. It's very descriptive. It's very illustrative. And, and you may not think that with our English language, but when you really study the original language, you see how descriptive and how um, how, how it was written in such a way to draw in a lot of imagination into God's design in the created order. And you see early in verse 1, chapter 1, that God does something with where things were, and he begins to set an order to it. So there's, think of it this way. There's this vast nothingness. There's this chaos. It's not sinful. It's not wrong. It's not broken because there's no sin in the world. God's perfectly dwelling amongst himself as the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's dwelling in creation, uh, in, in this vast nothingness, this vast void. He isn't lonely. He's not bored. He's not twiddling his thumbs, wondering what he's going to do. He's perfectly content in his godness, in the love that's shared amongst the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He decides to bring about a created order. And so in verse 1, you see this vast nothingness, this chaos, which the Hebrew would say wasn't ready to be inhabited by mankind. So, so think of it that way, that if we were put in this place before God's brought about the created order, if we were put in this place, this vast nothingness, I'm not sure what would happen to us, but we would cease to exist. It wasn't ready to be inhabited by mankind. God's going to take this vast nothingness, this chaos, and he's going to begin to create. And each day he creates. He creates and he calls it what? Good. Each day he creates, he calls it good. And so he establishes this rhythm. Day one, he creates, calls it good. Day two, he creates, calls it good. And this chaos is brought into rhythm and order. And the Hebrew idea is shalom. The word that we would understand is peace. Anybody love peace? I love me some peace. I love coming home at the end of a long day and just four kids and it just to be calm and peaceful. Rarely does it happen, but I love it when it does. God establishes a rhythm and peace in this place of chaos. Day one creates. Day two creates. He calls it good, and he establishes this his rhythm. But he's about to do something drastically different than he's done up to this point. That's where we pick up in verse 26. Let's read. Then God said, let us 
make man in our image after our likeness. Two massive things going on here that we need to see. That word, let us, that phrase, let us, it's different than what he has said. He said up to this point, let there be. So when God's created, he said, let there be light. Let there be plants. Let there be a greater light, a lesser light. He said, let there be. It's impersonal. It's matter of fact. It's here it is. And it from, from just like snap of the finger, there it existed all of the sudden. He does something different when he's about to create mankind. He says, let us. It's unbelievably personal what's going on here. There's an unbelievably vested interest in what God's doing here. We're about to learn some things about the nature and character of God and what he's about to do in creating mankind. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Again, this phrase, let us, is talking about the Godhead. So I'm about to explain something that, that has been heard of in our churches called the Trinity. Um, it's called the Godhead. There's different words to describe this idea of the Trinity. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit existing in, the, in one God. One God in three persons. If that doesn't hurt your head, I don't know what's wrong with you. You just fail to see it. Like, I've been studying this for a long time, and I still don't understand it. It's one of the tensions of our faith. But C.S. Lewis describes what's going on amongst the Godhead, that from the beginning, even before time began, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit perfectly dwell together. They shared perfect love together, perfect communion and fellowship together, and out of the goodness and the godness and the love that overflows from the Godhead, it spills over onto creation, and God starts to create, and he gets to mankind. He says, let us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So C.S. Lewis describes this picture of the Godhead as, as a dance. That the Father, and throughout Scripture, the Father perfectly glorifies the Son. That throughout Scripture, the Son perfectly glorifies the Father. And that in Scripture, throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit perfectly speaks to and glorifies the Father and the Son. There's this perfect unity amongst the Godhead, and God created mankind in that image. What does that tell you about how we're created? We're created to be in relationship. So did you know that Christianity is the only faith that has a God or a deity that starts in a place of love? Any modalistic religion, think Buddha, think Islam, any modalistic, meaning single God, modalistic deity, cannot share love because love has to be shared to be called love. So the essence of love, God is what? Love. God is love. The essence of love is shared amongst the Godhead. If you've ever seen or experienced love, you've experienced God because he is love. So he creates, he calls it good, he establishes a rhythm, and then he takes dirt. We didn't read this part, but he takes a lump of dirt. He breathes life into the dirt. The soul is created, and then he begins to create in the image of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where there's perfect unity, perfect love, perfect fellowship, perfect communion, and he's about to create man. He creates man, and verse 28, it picks up, and God blessed them, and God said to them, so you've got male and female here, he blesses them. It's very intimate. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we're seeing some more display unfold of how God's created and wired us. He's wired into the hearts of mankind, male and female, the desire for relationship. We see it because right here, he makes mankind into the image of himself who is in perfectly, perfectly perfect relationship in and amongst the Godhead. There's perfect relationship there. He creates us after his image and after his likeness, and then he puts them and he gives them direction. He starts to give them direction. So, so let, me, let me pose a question to you. If God begins to give them direction, which is unique and different from the rest of creation up to this point, up to this point, God's just spoken and created it, and, and, it's, and it's, it's fit its role, it's done what it's been called to do. So he creates a tiger, tigers do what tigers do. 
He creates this tree. This tree grows the way he created it to be. But with mankind, it's a bit different. He creates mankind from the dirt, breathes life into him, creates eternality within mankind, the male and the female, and then he begins to give them direction. Again, this speaks to how we are created and how we are hardwired. Let me ask it this way. If God created us to need direction, what does that communicate about us? Are we created dependent or independent? In, independent or dependent? Right, if I, if I need no direction, I, I, if I don't need you, if I don't need you to tell me what to do because I got it, that means I'm independent. He's created us in such a way to need. So I see this with my kids. I've got four kids and, and the younger they are, the more that I've seen it. But, but when they're little and they're sick, it's one of my favorite times as a dad because they come and curl up in my arms because they feel rotten. They want mom or dad to help. They know they're in need. They don't resist it. They don't act like they're not. And they curl up right in my arms. They're, depend, they're dependent. They're needy. They're clingy. You and I were created to need. You and I were created as dependent beings. God gives direction. He gives counsel and he calls them into the created order. Verse 29, and God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it is so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. First time he's used that phrase. Interesting, huh? He creates man and woman in the image of his likeness. He has said good, 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 good up to this point, but he creates mankind to display his perfect communion and fellowship in and amongst the Godhead, and he says it's very good, very good. If you've ever desired to be loved or accepted or to be in communion with somebody, you know where that comes from? Right here. If you've ever had aspirations for a family, if you've ever had aspirations to be cared for, to care for someone or to grow something where relationships prosper, do you know where that comes from? Right here in Genesis 1 and 2. God's hardwired it into the heart of humanity. And he says it's very good. So go to chapter 2, verse 15, a little further down the page. Chapter two is interesting because it's the same account of Genesis one, but with some added details, um, furthering the details. It's not a different story. It's the same story with furthered details. Pick it up in verse 15. It says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So there's, there's a couple things going on with these two phrases. The first, put him in, and then the Garden of Eden. Those two things are colliding and, and the writer's putting them together on purpose. First, put him in. When he puts him in the garden, that phrase literally entails rest and safety. So when man is placed into the garden, all his protection is perfectly afforded to him through God. There's, there's no desire in him to find a wall and to build a wall around it. Like his, his perfect protection is provided from the Lord and his soul, his heart is perfectly at rest. And he puts him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So this put him in with the garden of Eden, there's language. And this is why a lot of people think Moses wrote Genesis because the language consistent in Exodus 23 through 25, which is where God gives instruction to build the tabernacle. You know what the tabernacle was for? The tabernacle was God's dwelling amongst the people. Obviously sin had entered the world and there was the need for the atonement of sin. So mankind's ability, man and woman's ability to come up and confront and be with God and dwell with God ceased to exist because we were unholy because of sin on us. And so God makes a way for himself to dwell in and amongst the people. It's called the tabernacle. The language used to describe the tabernacle is the same language for the Garden of Eden. Isn't that amazing? That what the Garden of Eden encompasses, don't think garden. I mean, it was probably an awesome garden. Think unbelievable dwelling place. Perfect communion. Perfect fellowship. Have you ever been in a worship service where you just hands lifted high, worshiping your guts out, thinking Jesus is right there next to you, and then you hit a ceiling? Like it's, it's just like you've tapped out. It's as far as you can go because we're on earth and you're a man, you're a woman. Like you hit that ceiling, you know what I'm talking about? You have those moments? They didn't have that here. They, they, they never ran into that glass ceiling. Perfect communion, 
perfect fellowship, unhindered worship, perfect provision, perfect safety, perfect rest, everything they needed, perfect communion right there in the midst of the garden. Keeps going, verse 16. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Again, he's giving more direction based off that God-wired dependency. Verse 17, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So again, you see this good language. Who determines what's good? God does. Has he, has he asked man's opinion yet? Hey, look what I created, Adam. What you think, good or bad? Thumbs up, thumbs down. That hadn't happened. God creates. He calls it good. Man's response, enjoy the goodness, submit and obey and trust him. Man, this is like, this is the gig my kids have. My kids don't pay rent. Nine and below. They have a sweet gig. They get to eat for free. They don't pay rent. They're given pretty cool toys. They've got a sweet life. Enjoy the goodness of it. Obey and trust mom and dad. This is Adam and Eve. Enjoy the good that God has said is good. Come under it, obey it. Sweet gig. Man, I wish it was like that these days. It's about to change though. Go down to verse 25 though before we get there. So verse 17, he says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Quite a warning. Incredible counsel though. Like, it, wouldn't you think it'd be incredibly unloving if God just didn't tell them about that cliff and then they just walked right over it? No, no, he tells them, hey, that tree right there, don't eat of it. Don't eat of it. He, enjoy everything else. All these other things I've said are good. Go enjoy the, enjoy the heck out of them. Just enjoy the mess out of them. Enjoy them, enjoy them, enjoy them, but not that one. And then verse 25 of chapter two, and the man and his wife were both naked and were unashamed, not ashamed. You ever had that bad dream where you're naked in the hall at school or you're naked at your workplace and can't do anything about it? I've had that dream a couple times, hated it, hated it. Don't, don't leave me alone up here. I feel naked when y'all looking at me like this. No, that, like I was going over my notes last night with my kids and, and, and the girls, um, they have an attention span of about 10 minutes. So they kind of wandered off and the boys stuck it out. They, they let me get through this whole thing. And the boys are sitting there and I get to this part where naked and unashamed and they start to snicker because <laughs> they just can't comprehend the thought of being naked and not trying to run to your room and get your PJs on. They can't comprehend the idea of being naked and not looking for a place to hide or cover. That nakedness in and of itself is not wrong. That God had put them in this beautiful array, perfect provision, perfect communion and fellowship, perfect protection, rest for their soul, unhindered worship. There was no need to feel fear or shame or regret over the state of their body. There was no wondering what that person thought of them. There was no looking in the mirror and feeling disappointment at the shape of their body unashamed nakedness. And then in verse, chapter three, verse one, it picks up, things are about to change. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So the serpent, most scholars think that this is Satan. And you'd be hard pressed biblically to, to argue that this isn't Satan here. But so for, for our purposes, we're seeing this as Satan because I, I believe that is what is being said here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? So another voice, who's the voice up to this point that's driving things? God. God's the voice giving direction. God's the voice creating. God's the voice saying it's good, it's very good. God's establishing the rhythm, it's his voice. Another voice enters the exchange. Did God actually say, he begins to question God's rule. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Just a hypothetical, did he really say? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. 
So he takes God's word and he begins to twist it. This voice enters another direction, another counselor. He takes God's word and he twists it. Will God really provide everything that you need? Will God really bring the rest that you really long for? Will God really bring the provision that your soul desires? Will God really desire, will God really bring that satisfaction of relationship that he's hardwired into you? He's questioning God. And then he keeps going. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. This is a heartbreaking verse right here. So when the woman saw that the tree was what? Good. Who said good up to this point? God. You know what gets us in trouble? When we make something good that God hasn't said is good and we give our heart to it, it goes really bad for us. This is what happens here. She, sees, she listens to the other voice. She sees something and decides that it's good, good for food, and that it was the delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is heartbreaking. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. That word naked, it's a different word than chapter two, verse 25. When it says naked and unashamed, very different words. Both words in their essence mean bare, exposed, naked, as we would understand nakedness to be. But when sin enters the world right here, there's this picture of compounding shame. All of a sudden, the weight of the world falls on them and they're exposed. If you've ever been in an embarrassing or compromised situation, you know what this feels like. You wanna get out of the room, right? You ever been there? You get, you get made fun of or something happens and you're just like, man, I gotta get out of here. That's what they felt. They felt unbelievably compromised, unbelievably exposed, and fear went all over them. Who likes to feel that way? Anybody? I hate feeling that way. I hate feeling compromised. I hate feeling at a loss. Something pops up in my life and I don't know what to do. It makes my gut sick. I don't know what to do. I just want out of it. I don't want to feel this way. That's how they felt. And, 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 and the author of Genesis here, he's going to use this same word for nakedness several different times in several verses. And it, he's doing that on purpose to show the compounding weight of sin. There's no getting out from underneath the new reality. The new reality is this. You will feel compromised early and often. And when that happens, the weight of it will drive you away from that place of isolation and vulnerability. So last, last Sunday, I took uh, our kids swimming. We, like on Sundays, we'll try to go swimming in the pool uh, here in the building. And, um, you know, when it snows all the time and it's so cold, you get stir crazy, right? So you just gotta get out and do something. And so Sundays is the day where we just let them burn energy. So we're there, the two boys, they swim pretty good. They can handle themselves. Leah's getting there. And then Miriam, my youngest, thinks she can swim because she watches them swim, okay? So she gets to wear the life preserver. Um, Leah, like she'll stay close to me, but I let her kind of do her thing. And the boys, I can watch them and be close enough where if I need to, I can deal with um, them potentially drowning. Well, Miriam, she's close to the wall. Wall's right here. Close to dad. Dad's right here. She's feeling large and in charge. She's got this thing. She's in her, in, her, in her life jacket, and she can grab the wall here. She sees dad's in a close comfort. Well, what happens is she starts to kind of drift away, and not for me because I stay close to her. I, I got to stay close to her because she, she lets out loud cries if I'm not close to her in the water, and I'm close to her, but she lost sight of me. And, and while she lost sight of me, she lost sight of the wall. And at the same time, she lets out this shriek. Every lifeguard, head on a swivel, like runs to it. I'm like, guys, I'm right here. I got it. We're good. We're good. But she, in that moment, realized how compromised she was. Do you know the reality is she was always compromised? She's three years old and didn't know how to swim. She realized how compromised she were, was when she lost sight of dad. This is what happens to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were vulnerable because they're not God. God created them as dependent beings, places them in the garden to enjoy him perfectly. Perfect communion, perfect fellowship, perfect love and acceptance, perfect worship that they get to then share with one another. Out of the overflow of the vertical, then they get to share that love and affection and worship and communion together with one another and whatever relationships God brings along as they multiply. And all of a sudden, it's gone. And they panic 
And just like my daughter, a loud, shrill scream goes throughout everything. And then here's where it picks up. It says, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. So here's where we really get ourselves in trouble, and this is where I really relate with old Adam and Eve. I mean, I don't know if it makes a lot of sense to sew fig leaves together, but I know I do a lot of dumb stuff to deal with my own shame. Any other hands want to go up? Oh, great, leave me alone. Awesome. We as people do really dumb things to deal with our shame. It's called self-medication. It's called self-atonement. It's called self-soothing. We feel the angst. We press in and deal with it on our own. And in this place, they sewed fig leaves together. I've just wondered. We've already got Adam sitting passively while his wife's getting worked over by the serpent. I've just wondered, like, what if Adam and Eve, in the cool of the garden, they hear the sound of the Lord, and they'd have just come out of the shadows. We did it. We ate. We ate the tree. You said not to. We're naked. We're afraid. We don't know what to do. What do they do? They sow fig leaves, and they go to the deepest thicket in the garden. And as if God doesn't know where they are, if God has forgotten where they are, if God's surprised by what's just happened, the picture of the sound that they hear in the garden, think Job 38.1, when God shows up in a storm to speak to Job. It's violent, it's loud, it's judgment. They hear this sound and they run and they hide. And the God who initiates life in Genesis 1 and 2 is about to initiate redemption. Here's what he says. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse nine, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? Can you imagine? They have this beautiful opportunity, this sweet moment. God's redemptively calling them out of the shadows. He's calling them out of their shame. This sweet moment of redemption. He's initiating redemption right here. Sin has happened, yes. Shame has happened, yes. Fear has crept in, no doubt. He's calling them, he's wooing them out of the dark place. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. There's that word again. And I hid myself. God says, he said, who told you you were naked? So here's one of these sweet moments that we all get of what not to do. And I'm gonna especially put the weight on husbands and men in this room, but this is for all of us, what not to do. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman, the woman, so let's, let's back up a bit. When Eve is getting tempted by the serpent, Adam's right next to her because she simply turns to him and gives to eat. He's hearing his wife get worked over by darkness and says nothing. Are you kidding me? This is the pervasive passivity that I see in men. And then God confronts them and he has a sweet opportunity. Own it, bro. Own it. It's the wife. She did it. Oh, and you're the one who gave me that gift. He blames her and he blames God. Are you serious? Own it. That brokenness. It's brokenness because we've fallen short, but when the Spirit prompts, own it. Life is found there. Healing's found there. Do you see the trend that started here? That we're not outside of what Adam does. I do the same thing all the time. I'm squared up with my sin, and I look for justifying reasons to make it okay. It was never okay. Own it. And what if in this moment, Adam says, you're right, God. I should have spoken up. I didn't follow your counsel. My wife ate and I ate. I own it. Help. He didn't do that. He justifies. He qualifies. He sidesteps. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
So Adam avoids confession. He blames his wife. He blames God. And then verses 14 through 19, you see God's judgment come. The consequences of sin fall square on the serpent, the man, and the woman. And the two great blessings that God brings in Genesis 1 and 2, the blessings of life through, um, through multiplication, that, that the woman could, could, could bear a child and could give birth. Um, guess what? Labor pains. Any woman who's had a child, you can look back here and just say, wow, there was a time when a woman could deliver without any pain. Wow, how things have changed. And the blessing of the land that God gives to Adam to work and the abundance that would come, it would now beat him into submission for the rest of his life until it eventually killed him and he turned back into the very dust that he came from. So the two great blessings from God become curses. But even in the midst of this, because this is a, they're like, hey man, come in, Pastor Lee, why don't you bring some good news, man? This is like heavy, right? There are threads of redemption in this. In verse 21, you see God take animal skins. He kills an animal and he takes the skins of the animal to cover their nakedness. Wow, what, what, a, what a provider. <laughs> that bloodshed now has to happen to cover our shame, which builds into the idea of bloodshed for sacrifice to bring us into a, the atonement of sin so that I can no longer be before God unclean. I now have to have bloodshed to cover and atone for my sins so that I can be before a holy God. And then Romans 8, 22 through 24 is gonna talk about that creation groans, like, like childbirth, that creation groans in anticipation of the coming of Christ and what God's going to do to make all things right so that even in the midst of this dark day, that, that the fall, the floor has fallen out from underneath the beautiful created order. Even in the midst of this dark day, there's a thread of redemption that God is speaking through. So here's, here's why I set this up to frame us into Ephesians, what we're about to get into. There's kind of two extreme responses. So God creates everything out of the abundance of his love and fellowship and communion amongst the Godhead, it spills over into his creation of mankind. And in the image of God, there's perfect fellowship and communion and acceptance and love experienced vertically. And then he brings man and woman together and that out of that multiplication, horizontally, they can experience love and fellowship. That, that there's this beautiful non-codependency. I've got God and I love you. Here's the two extremes that happen these desires that are God-given, because everyone in this room has a desire to be loved, has a desire to be in relationship, has a desire for fellowship, a desire for communion, a desire to be accepted. These things are hardwired into your soul by God. Those desires are distorted by sins. Other people sin against us. It's called abuse. So things like neglect happen. I can't tell you how many young men I've counseled over the years who grew up in a fatherless home because their fathers abandoned them when they were babies. You know what kind of wounds that cause in a person? You know? Massive wounds. So those desires to be loved are dashed by a man they never met. Those desires to be accepted are dashed by a mom who neglected. Those desires to be cared for are abused and mistaken by selfish parents who neglect the children that they were called to steward and love. Second way, these desires are distorted by self-centered pursuit, that we leverage relationships for what we can get out of it and never see them in light of the vertical relationship that God's called us to have first. So here's, here's what that means, that out of the overflow of the love that Adam and Eve had for God, they best loved one another. In other words, Adam didn't need Eve's love to feel whole. He had it from God. Does that make sense? Here's how that plays out today. Husband and wife have to have a certain type of love from one another or they feel like they'll cease to exist. That is not biblical. It is not godly. It is not from God as designed in Genesis 1 and 2. That means they're loving one another for a self-centered, what can I get out of it? And if I don't get this, my life ceased to exist that what they're called and what they're designed for is love and affection and relationship vertically that then affords them the ability to pursue that horizontally, trusting God to bring it as he desires for them. So sins against us and sins from us thwart and distort these God-given desires for love, fellowship, 
acceptance, communion, all of these beautiful things that are satisfied perfectly by God. So the good news, go to Ephesians chapter three. Ephesians chapter three will be in verse 14. So the desires that God has put in us, they're not bad desires. My desire to be loved, my desire to be cared for, my desire to be nurtured, my desire for acceptance, my desire um, for communion and fellowship, all of those things were hardwired in me by God and are perfectly satisfied, him, and satisfied by God in me. Genesis 3 happens, sin enters the world. Those desires aren't put on pause. They're not put on hold. I seek those desires elsewhere, which is what Adam and Eve did, and that introduced this idea of sin and brokenness and enmity between us and God. So pick it up in verse 14. For this reason, what reason? Well, go to back to verse four, Genesis, uh, exit, um, excuse me, Ephesians 3, 4. So what happens here is Paul is, he's, he's interrupted in thought. Early in, in chapter three of Ephesians, he's got this thought. He's about to pray this prayer over them. It's a prayer of blessing, but it's not just a prayer like, like oh, now we can eat. It's a prayer like it's undergirded with unbelievable truth that a blessing's coming up over them and then this beautiful, this beautiful truth underneath them to hold them close in the truths of the gospel. He gets sidetracked. <laughs> Paul gets sidetracked and doesn't pick up that thought till verse 14. But whatever he got sidetracked by was pretty important. So let's see it in verse four. He says this, when you read this, you can perceive my insight, in, insight into the mystery of Christ. So this, this mystery he's about to unpack, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. He's talking about the prophets that these prophets, it, it, they, weren't, they weren't neglecting hearing from God. Their heads weren't in the sand. God just had chosen not to bring this mystery, this revelation to them. But through the Spirit, not through Paul's own doing, through the Spirit, God's giving him clarity into this mystery. This mystery is this. Known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed in his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through what? Through the gospel. Paul is using a very drastic analogy to make a deep spiritual point. The Jews were recognized as God's people. God established it that way. He set apart a people. They were called the Jewish people. He set them apart for his own. And what would happen in these circles is that the Jews would see salvation for them in themselves only because of the covenant that they had with God early in the Old Testament. What Paul is saying is like, no, the gospel levels the playing field. That the Gentiles, a Gentile wasn't a race. A Gentile was somebody outside of God's chosen people, which means anybody outside the Jewish community. And a Gentile could come into the Jewish community by coming under all the covenants that are established by God. But what Paul's saying here is that you don't need that. Through Christ, through the gospel, you can be brought in. And the second point he's making is both of you, Jews and Gentiles, are equally in need of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That just because you come from a certain demographic, just because you come from a certain type of family, it doesn't get you better favor. This is a beautiful truth, guys. Because there are, the, the fact is that in this room, there are people that come from phenomenal families. Like you, you, you go into your marriage, you go into your family, having watched phenomenally godly parents model to you what it means to be a Christ-honoring mother and father, and you've benefited by just their pouring into you by example. You need the gospel just as much as the person who had no family and grew up on the streets as an orphan. That's what he's saying. No one has a leg up. No one. That we're equally in need of the gospel. So whether you're an orphan, whether you come from a stellar family, you need the gospel. That here's, here's, here's what he's saying. Our hope can't be our heritage. My hope can't be my family. 
My hope can't be my wife, how she treats me or doesn't treat me. My hope can't be my kids, how they're being obedient or not being obedient. That, that love that comes from God out of the overflow of his trinity that's perfectly reconciled for me through Christ flows into those relationships. Do you see why I'm not talking about family much? Because our hope can't be there. Our hope can't be better fathers. Our hope cannot be better mothers. Our hope cannot be better husbands and wives and better kids. That can't be our hope. Paul is saying, our hope's the gospel, not your lineage. So my father, love him. He's the godliest man that I know. If I'm in a jam, he's the man that I call. Has modeled for me more Christ-likeness than any man that I've ever known. But can I tell you, my hope's not in him because I see my deep and utter need for reconciliation and that only reconciling work happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So whether you're an orphan, I'm gonna say it again, whether you're an orphan, fatherless, motherless, or come from stellar bloodlines, none of it matters. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the ground is leveled. And then he picks up in verse 14 where we started. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family, you see that, Father? The, the, the Father language is gonna be used consistently in Ephesians. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So this idea of family, like God is stewarding, he's the Father over this larger unit or group of units, and he perfectly oversees like a father those units. These families are brought into the fold by him himself. And here's the beautiful part of it. The, the, the essence of the flow, the essence of the text has the aroma of it's more than just a describing point. Here's what I mean. So if you went back to southeast New Mexico where I grew up, and you started to talk to people, and you started to learn about the Lewises. I'm a Lewis. You would learn things about my family. You would learn things about me that describe me. This is not that kind of thing. In biblical soul care, we use language, prescriptive and descriptive. Descriptive describes things about me. Prescriptive describes the uttermost part of me. So, prescriptively in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. That is prescriptively a describer about them. After the fall, sin enters the world. Prescriptively, their hearts are broken, full of sin, and in full-on rebellion and need of a Savior. So what he's saying here is that as the ground is leveled because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Father brings you into the family, and that family becomes the uttermost determining factor in your life. Do you hear the hope in that? You could have been raised in the gutter. Your name could be of ill refute wherever you grew up, but that's not how he sees you. It's the hope of the gospel. That I was, I was orphaned. I was unlovable. A reject of rejects. But I'm brought into the family and he sees me as one of his. It's a prescriptive truth. It's not just a describing point. Like I'm a Lewis. No, I'm in the Father's family, and nothing can draw you out of that. This is the hope of the gospel. So I, I know in a room this size, there's going to be wounds. There's going to be feelings of rejection. You, think, think of times when you've been in just periods of loneliness. Think of situations um, or, or times when you felt utter rejection. You know what that means according to this truth of the gospel? that there's no rejection you can endure that supplants who you are in the family of God. My wife, she could just go loopy and leave me. And it would hurt, man, it would hurt. But if I'm found in him, that's the greatest determining factor in my life. That's a game changer. It's why Paul can say what he says, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Kill me, I get to be with him, because that's who I am. Let me live, I'm gonna preach the gospel, it's a win-win. It's a dangerous dude. Changes everything. When you're in the family of God, it becomes the uttermost determining factor of your life, which means you could be in a horrific family situation. But if you're found in the gospel through Christ, greatest determining factor. Changes the lenses for how you see the brokenness, doesn't it? 
No longer is that the thing that draws you into darkness. You're found in him, and you see that as a redemptive opportunity to be light and salt in that darkness. Your marriage is on the rocks. You're hopeless in it. If the utter determining fact is who you are in Christ, in the family of God, it changes how you see that brokenness. You become an agent of grace in that place of sorrow and difficulty. It changes everything. And then he keeps going. Verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. If I had time, I would unpack that. It's incredible. Remember when I talked about the dirt that was scooped up in Genesis and he breathed life into it? That inner being, the soul, that the reality and the truths of the gospel, they slowly permeate to every cellular inch of your body and entrench your soul. (laughs) That it's not a flimsy thing. It's not flimsy, like it's sap soaked into the depths of your soul, the inner being, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, what is the length, what is the height, what is the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's so much going on here, but what I wanna point out is that what he's saying is when you're drawn into the family of God and that becomes the uttermost determining factor of you, that God's your father through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the same gospel that saves you and secures that for you, he uses the same gospel to strengthen and secure you to the nth degree for the rest of your life. I, I mean, that should draw an Amen. In other words, the flash in the pan youth camp retreat when you walked down the aisle and accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, that was the gospel. It doesn't stop there. You never mature beyond the gospel. You never get past the Jesus phase. You don't. That in Christ, we're deepened and drawn into such riches that future rejection that I'll feel is covered by who I am in Christ. Future alienation, I feel, is covered by the blood of Christ. That's a huge hope for us, brother and sister. It changes everything. It means the sorrows that come against me aren't seen in the way of horizontal. They're seen as, God, help me. I know I can approach you. I'm found in your family. I draw near to you, and he gives us the grace we need through the gospel to walk through and endure those challenges, those sufferings that come our way. So my grandmother, um, and I'm closing with this, um, my grandmother, she's, she's gone on to be with the Lord, but it's my dad's mom. She, if, if I went back to West Texas, West Texas uh, where she grew up, um, little bitty town, uh, her last name was Browning. Um, if I went back to that town where she grew up, today, if I went back to that town where she grew up and I said, hey, you know any Brownings? It's not going to earn me much favor with people in that town. They were bad people, wicked people, lots of sin, lots of depravity, lots of abuse. She was the youngest of 14 and grew up in that family. She was the only girl in that family full of brothers and half-brothers. Unbelievable amounts of abuse and, and darkness. Fatherless, motherless, was more so raised by the best of the brothers, which weren't great options. And then God saves her at 18 years old. He saves her at 18 years old and starts a whole new trajectory for her life. So those things that happened to her, those things that she responded in sinfully in those early years because of her family, all that changed for her. All of it changed. So what what our culture is going to tell you is this. Our culture is going to say, you're a product of your environment, family of origin. Man, we're all in trouble if that's true. And what the gospel says that we just read in Ephesians is that no family of origins broken, but a new family through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the hope she had wasn't in the brownings. There was nothing to hope in there. And yet I was raised in a stellar family. My hope's not in that. It won't get me the reconciliation with God which reestablishes the communion and fellowship and love and acceptance that is to be had fully vertically through him that's reconciled and brought about through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the basis for family, it has to be the gospel. So the hope for our families 
has to be the gospel because we can't build on anything else. We shouldn't build on anything else. So let's pray. So just bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm gonna give us some things to kind of think through and pray through privately. So think in your own heart, your own life, if God's wired you to need him, if God has wired you to desire love, to desire relationship, to desire communion and fellowship and acceptance and all these things that are perfectly met in him, when and where do you seek those outside of him? Those are called idols. They can never be what God perfectly is in those areas. God never intended those things to provide what he perfectly provides. Perfect provision, perfect protection, perfect communion. What are those things? Maybe you find yourself in a place where you feel the wounds from the sins committed against you, those who were supposed to love you, those who should have loved you the most, hurt you the most because of the close dynamics of family, the wounds that come from the sins of others, the rejection, the alienation. Maybe you're in that place where you just feel utterly alone. You're just hurting there. Like people are all around you, but you feel so terribly alone. Like Adam and Eve in the garden after sin enters the world. Compounded shame. There's hope in Christ. Turn to him now. Call on him now. So, Father, where we have run to created things to satisfy those God-given desires, desires to be loved, desires to be cared for, desires for communion and fellowship and relationship, those things that you put in us, oh, God, forgive us where we've sought them elsewhere. Lord, we want to find them in you through Christ. Jesus, we look to you. You bring love. You bring mercy. You bring a hope. Christ, we look to you. So for the man and woman in this room, God, who feels the weight of rejection, feels the weight of neglect, feels the weight of the shame from their sins that have alienated, alienated them. Lord, would you draw them in right now? Break them down and draw them in right now, Lord. Draw them in to the goodness of your gospel. So Jesus, we look to you. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. Our hope is in you. We praise you and worship you, oh Jesus that we can be reconciled to God the Father and that we can dwell with you, O oh God. That we can commune with you, O oh God. That we can have relationship with you, O oh God. So we bless you. Be glorified in our lives. Teach us these things daily. Let us never get too far from the gospel. Enrich our hearts, enrich our lives with these things, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.